told you after we sang our special this morning that I would be making some comments, as a matter of fact, making a number of them based on that special song. But we'll begin what might not seem like it goes with this song. Uh, Acts chapter 26 and verses 1 and 2. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. Because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. Let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord to bless our lesson this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, and come before you, Lord, grateful that you sent a Redeemer for us, a Savior, one who provided, Lord, for everything we could not provide for ourselves, Lord. May we never be ungrateful for this truth, Lord. May we never be ungrateful for the provision that is found in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to pursue him. Help us to desire him. Help us, Lord, to live for him. And gratitude for that provision that he has made. And Lord, help us to show ourselves grateful with our very lives, I trust, Father, that you'd help us to enjoy this truth, Lord, and to celebrate this truth and apply this truth this morning, Father, learning more of it. And giving you the glory, Father. Bless this word to us. Bless this time of fellowship, I ask, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I, I very much like the song that we sang this morning, that special. It was called Lifeline. Uh, it comes from, uh, well, if you consider the perspective of that song, if you read the words that are up there, I'm glad that we have the words for the lyrics. It helps us to have some understanding of the things that we're singing, I believe. Uh, it helps us kind of, well, maybe get all of the meaning that's there, some, some specific things that we wouldn't if we were struggling to hear the words. But if you look at the words that are there, you recognize that the writer of the song was, was writing from a vulnerable position, was writing from a submissive position, was writing from a, a tender position, self-effacing, you might even say, uh, needing the Lord Jesus as a lifeline uh, for all of well, all of their lives. And so I sing that song as I do all of our specials, well, as it applies for myself. I, I, the Lord is my lifeline. Jesus is indeed my lifeline, and indeed he has been my lifeline for all of my life. And so we're going to con- well, kind of explore those thoughts this morning, specifically how he has been a lifeline of sorts to us throughout all of our lives. In different manners, he has been that. Uh, I, I am going to use the word posture a number of different times this morning because I like illustrations and I like, well, it helps me to understand things better when I see illustrations. And as I'm looking at this provision that the Lord is for us, Jesus specifically, as our lifeline, I see him taking different postures as our lifeline throughout different courses of our Christian experience. See him taking different positions, you might say. I gave a series some time ago about the posture of prayer, different postures we can have. We can pray standing up, we can pray kneeling down, we can pray with our hands up, we can hold our bodies in a number of different ways. Uh, The Lord is a person of spiritual composition, right? But you'll go with me on this illustration of him holding postures, of assuming postures for us, bodily positions, I guess you could say, in in this role as our lifeline, what position he took, what posture he held when we barely knew him and came to know him for the first time, what posture he takes when we know him our very best, to the very best that we can know him, what his body's posture is, and a number of different places in between 
uh, the posture that he takes there. Um, with that kind of, well, awkward intro there, perhaps, let's look at the first one, and you'll understand where I'm going this morning. Uh, everyone experiences, everyone who is here who has accepted the Lord for their Savior, everyone has experienced Christ in assuming the first posture, his first position that he takes uh, when we, well, when we first become his child, because Everybody has been at that lowest point that mankind can be in, and that lowest point is lost. Not knowing the Lord Jesus, not having the truth of salvation, and not having the, prov- the provision of his redemption. When we were enemies to him, spiritually speaking, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 talks about our place at that time, that at that time you were without Christ, absent from your heart, absent from your fellowship, absent from our union with him. At that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I don't remember what that is to feel this, to be in this position. I don't have a recollection of being without God. Actually, I look at this kind of threefold. No hope without God. And in the world, I look at those all three kind of being separate components of what our position was, hopeless. God wasn't present, well, again, in our fellowship. He could use us as he determined, but we didn't have a joint will with him. And we were in the world. In the world and not of it, we talk about these days. At that point, we were in the world and of it. Of the world, you could say. We were part of its fabric. We didn't have that new creation that we all enjoy today. We were, well, altogether fleshly and and worldly and part of the world. And like I said, I'm glad I don't remember that to a certain extent because that's a crummy place to be. And I don't want to have memories of that, I guess I could say. Psalm chapter 40. Let's look at it a little bit closer here. This is a description of that place, of where we were, where we would be today, even without the Lord Jesus. David was speaking in Psalm chapter 40 and verse 2, a metaphor we consider rather often, where he says, He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. I have some pretty decent familiarity with Play-Doh. I have a three-year-old granddaughter who likes to play with it. My kids like to play with it when they were younger. Play-Doh can be messy, especially when it gets kind of dry and it kind of crumbles off. You know how it is. It gets all over the place. Those neon colors are everywhere. It got stuck in my shoe when Emmy dropped it off of her chair and I stepped in it and I was dragging little pieces of bright blue stuff all over the house before I realized what it was. But for most, most applications, it's relatively clean, doesn't leave anything on your hands, that sort of thing. Allie and I took a pottery class, and it wasn't clean. It wasn't Play-Doh. That we, were, we were spinning actual clay. And we had, you know, if you're familiar with pottery, you have a wheel and it's turning, you put that big hunk of clay up there, and you take water and you're slopping all over it. We've used it for illustrations before. Your hands are just dripping and slippy and all that kind of stuff. And as you apply more water here and more clay comes off as you're shaping it and all of that sort of thing, you have trimmings that come off of it. All of that goes into this bucket of water, and then that all goes to this 55-gallon bucket, at least in the outfit that we were working with. And you dump it in there, and you smash all the clay into this big 55-gallon drum. All the clay sinks to the bottom. All the water stays up in the top. But everything's that same homogenous, silty-looking 
crummy gray color. <clears throat> and if you were to plunge your hand down into that 55-gallon bucket, you'd find a little place in the interim there where all the thick stuff was on the bottom, all the water was on the top, and then right in the middle is this kind of slippy. They call it slip. It's kind of where the water and the clay kind of, you can't tell hardly a difference there. And that's where the miry clay is at. So it's a great illustration because that's kind of where we were. We weren't new creation when we, when we didn't know the Lord. We were invested in the world and we were part of its fabric and makeup. Kind of a mix between water and earth and just kind of just that miry clay. We were stuck down in the middle of that. That's where the mire is. We're intermingled with the world. Kind of, well, a piece of it, I guess. Not really knowing where one ends and the other begins. It's a sad place. And as we read a moment ago, it's a hopeless place when left to your own devices. A hopeless place. Because it requires help to leave it. You can't do it on your own. There's no swimming up out of the mire. There's no, I'm pulling myself up by the bootstraps. We understand this. There's one route, one route to get out of the miry clay. And that's our Savior, of course. But let's look at a natural example. A natural example of this miry clay in action in Jeremiah chapter 38. Our brother Scott talked about it this morning. Uh, He went to Lamentations. He actually stole a couple of my verses this morning. Uh, We'll have words later on. Lamentations 38 and verse 6. I'm joking too much this morning. I joked with Brother Jim earlier when it was a serious matter, and now I'm joking with Scott. I'll have words of apology later on. That's what I will do. Jeremiah chapter 38 and verse 6. This literal example gives us an understanding of the figurative place that we were in before we knew the Lord Jesus. Okay, so they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon, there was no water. It's important to understand this. It's not just, just a pool down there. There was no water but mire. And nevertheless, despite there not being standing water, perhaps it was slurry enough that he sunk into it. You know, there are, there's underground water tables and that sort of thing, and stuff can leach in. Some of you might have some basements that might let water in. It might not be a torrent of water, but it's enough just to keep things damp. Well, similar is what you saw in Judah, in Jerusalem. You'd see, well, cracking into a piece of the water table underneath, perhaps, and it just constantly kept that dirt just soggy, perhaps. And he sank in it. He sank in that mire, that Slurry of clay and water that's not good for anything to live except maybe some microbes or something, but certainly not mammals, certainly not creatures that want to live a pleasant life. No water to drink there, no clay to form and shape. It's, 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 not, it's not a good place to be naturally or spiritually. It's a sad and hopeless place if you don't have the necessary help to leave it. And that's where we are spiritually before we know Jesus. We need someone to pull us out. Fortunately, Jeremiah demonstrates this. He had someone to pull him out. He wasn't going to get out of there by himself, right? Again, it's a rather perfect example of of where we are spiritually. There was an Ethiopian eunuch in the courts of the king at that time. And that Ethiopian eunuch took pity on Jeremiah. And he went to the king and he said, These ones that had him put down there, they were selfish, they were self-serving, they, they didn't like what Jeremiah had to say. He had the audacity to speak the word of God to the king and to those ones who were present there. This is what's going to happen, Jeremiah told them. This is what's going to happen as a result of God's judgment and righteous judgment upon us. We need to go with it and be judged and let him work on the other end of that judgment. 
And they refused it. They didn't want to hear it, so they tossed him down in that pit. Well, this eunuch took pity on him, and he interceded to the king. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 9. My lord the king, my lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. This is that eunuch speaking to him. Whom they've cast into the dungeon, and he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Abed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from here thirty men with you, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. So Abed-Melech took the men with him, and went into the house of the king under the treasury, and took from there old clothes and old rags, and let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. Then Abed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. You see, Jeremiah couldn't do anything for himself, could he? Now, I, I guess, suppose you could say, well, he put rags under his armpits. <laughs> yeah, okay, he did that. Why did he do that, by the way? Well, if you consider what, what this is trying to tell us and you put two and two together, you can recognize have you ever walked through a sludge pit? Jude and I did a race. Typically, the races that I do are just runs. I'm not racing anybody, but I'm just running out there on pavement. But we did a race not long ago where it was a half marathon combined with a bunch of different, well, obstacles and stuff. And mud pits were a part of it. It was the dirtiest, nastiest race I've ever been a part of because it was covered with mud for half of it. I think half marathon is already, you know, unpleasant enough. Now let's just add some mud everywhere and stick it in your hair and all that sort of thing. Anyway, I digress. So we're crawling across this mud pit. I don't crawl across mud pits very often, but you know what I discovered? It's not fun to crawl across mud pits because if you're crawling across it, stepping on it, kneeing into it, whatever the case might be, and they intentionally soak it all down, and it is muddy, and it has its own mire and garbage, but we both lost shoes. We had to go back and find our shoes because it goes, you know, like that, and your foot goes, and it leaves the shoe behind, right? Because it creates this suction in there. It's science and physics, and there's this vacuum that happens. Jeremiah was, you know, a size 11 uh, Nike. You know what I'm saying? He was stuck in the mire. And he had to be pulled out. And it wasn't something, again, let me reiterate, it wasn't something he was going to do by himself. He was so stuck, and they were so familiar with this and had some understanding that the king said, take 30 men. Do you recognize this? It wasn't 30 men to protect the Ethiopian. It was because that guy needed to get sucked up and out. I've never made so many sound effects up here. But he had to get sucked up and out of that mire. And so they put cloths under his arms because at the very least that man was going to suffer some pretty substantial rope burns, I would imagine. His grip wasn't going to hang on to it. He was suffering down there. 30 men, at least a measure of those 30 men would be required to Pull him up. I, I might be wrong, but I think if we had a you know, right pulley or something like that, and even if we didn't have a, a whole block and tackle, I think two of us could probably, two good-sized guys in here, women too, you all are strong, we could pull some people up, pull a guy straight up, not out of the mire. It needed something more. 30 men. And that's what we looked like, spiritually speaking, right? Hopeless, man. Vacuum sucked. doesn't want to let you go. We needed help. We needed help. Now, we didn't have an Ethiopian eunuch. We had the Son of God, certainly. We had the Lord Jesus. 
our Savior, our Redeemer, he interceded on our behalf to the Father and said, I will pull them up out of the miry clay. You know we consider this quite often. But it is a touching, tender, powerful, beautiful consideration that the Lord reached down. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That portion of Ephesians 2 goes on to say, How come? Because the Lord Jesus did with us oh, what he did with Israel, what he speaks of in Hosea chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. He speaks frankly here, Jehovah does. He says, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. They did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them, the Lord Jesus, and this is our posture number one, if you want to put it that way. He stooped down and reached down and pulled us out of the miry clay. We could not have done it for ourselves. Jeremiah didn't grab anything, didn't do anything. He just tucked the rags underneath, wrapped it, looped it, and just let it take place as he pulled them out. We needed the Lord Jesus, our own lifeline, to reach straight down and pull us out of the miry clay and furthermore cleanse us and clean us and remove us, separate us continually and permanently from that in-between of water, clay, mire, and slip. And so we did. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, we're children of God and we have been removed from the mire. Never again to become again a part of that homogenous silty, worldly mess. I'm grateful for that first posture he took, bending over, reaching down to pull us up out of the miry clay. Now, the song that we sang this morning goes on to the second posture. It's speaking from that perspective, that second in-between throughout the course of life, that perspective that it has. And that's that situation of the present believer. Some of us might sing and speak from that perspective more than others. Uh, some of us might have a, a deeper understanding of the, well, the terror, the despair, the discouragement, the struggle that we, that we sung, sang about this morning of being nearly going under the water. Can't help myself in this moment. I'm beyond, beyond help, beyond doing anything. I'm going under and that's, and that's that. Well, the believer, now that we're outside of the miry clay, no longer stuck in that garbage, we can still choke and we can still flounder just on a different element. And that's water. Uh, in this metaphor, it is. If you look at Mark chapter 4 and verse 19, it's not water speaking uh, that Jesus is speaking of here, but the concept is the same. He speaks about the cares of the world when he talks about this parable of the sower. He says, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, and that's broadly speaking, okay? It's not just riches. It's not just the, the wanting material goods and that, that sort of thing. It's anything. Desires for other things. It doesn't have to be carnal lusts. It doesn't have to be that. It's just anything that we want. We want, just want more time. I, you know, I want more time. So let me put aside... I'll read my Bible later. I need to go do this. Guilty, been there, done that. I'm not, I'm not going to be a hypocrite in that. But sometimes we desire other things that choke out. Choke out the word, it says. Uh, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for any and every other thing entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. 
The cares of this world do that. Now, if you want to, again, keeping it from this illustration that we're looking at, when we sing about being overwhelmed by the waves and the water and that sort of thing, is it not a picture of the, of the world? Is it not a representation of that? And that water comes and slops over and makes us choke. Anybody here not choked on some water when you were swimming or, or whatever the case may be, where you accidentally took some into your nose and you, you, know, you have that well, it's a spasm of your epiglottis that's happening back there. A little bronchial spasm is taking place and it makes you choke and it makes you feel like you're going to die. And if it's bad enough, it makes you feel like you want to die. It's, I don't like it myself. I don't enjoy it. Getting water in your nose and you come up and you feel like, well, it's just unpleasant, right? It's unpleasant. The cares of this world choke the word from giving us the peace that it should. It, it takes its place. It slops over our face. Uh, I think... <laughs> I need to not tell stories of my family, but I'll do that another day. I'll stop. Today, however, uh, I remember watching Janelle uh, in a pool one time. And she was out there swimming, and, and well, she looked like she was going to drown for a minute. She took on some water or something, kind of panicked. She was in the deep end. And she came up, and her hair was all in her face. And she goes, Dad. And Dad, Dad was over here, I think, reading a book for some reason. I'm not sure why I remember him reading a book. But he puts down his book and he's kind of calm and then he just goes over and he runs and he jumps and kind of cannonballed into the, into the pool. And water washed right over Janelle. I mean, I just, you know, I was looking for this, save, this rescue, you know. First he tried to kill her a little bit more satisfactorily for just a second. But then he pulled her out and he rescued her. You know, it just, the water went over and it was choked out everything. You can't breathe. You can't, well, it's hard to find peace in those, in those times. And the cares of this world and the desires of this world, whether we realize it or not, when something is taking our eyes off of the things of God, it's choking us, again, whether we realize it or not. We, how many times, saints, have you been off the, well, off the path, I guess you could say, off the path that you know that the Lord has for you? After some time, you're like, how did I, how did I get here? Where I'm, look how far I am. How did I get so far from things? Yeah, you can be choked off and not even have any understanding. Choked with fear sometimes. Afraid of those things that are, well, that you feel are going to hurt you or harm you. We can be fearful of those things. Physically, harm us financially, harm us in a number of different ways. We can be afraid of those things. We can be, well, we can be choked out by things that give us comfort. Things that give us pleasure, naturally speaking, we can be choked out by those things or we can just be choked out with life. Fill in the blank for yourself. I think you probably understand. Whatever distracts us, whatever draws our attention from him is going to choke out the word if we allow it to. Now, you know there's no better picture of the water coming up and over and choking things out than our brother Peter. I mean, as soon as you see the backgrounds that we're dealing with here, waves and all and the like, I can practically envision Peter's standing right there in the middle of that. And so let's go there. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14 and verse 29. If you aren't familiar with this story, let me encourage you. Read the story because it is a blessed one and it is one that will speak to you as it has spoken to perhaps hundreds of millions in, in history. I'm not sure. But just setting it up, Jesus had sent his disciples across the sea, told them to, well, to go across the sea in a boat, and so they did. They're out in the middle of the boat. 
the wind, the waves stirred up and that sort of thing, causing them some distress. Jesus, however, was walking. He wasn't struggling as they were. He was walking out on the water, uh, and they were afraid. And you understand that Peter looked and they saw him, and he says, it's me. A number of different accounts uh, presented in Mark and also in John. But we're looking at Matthew's here, and Peter saw that it was, well, he looked like Jesus said it was Jesus, and well, he told him, he says, if it's you, Lord, call me out to you. And so he said, we see in verse uh, 28, 29 rather here. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And so it should be for the child of God. You know, Lord, you call me out. Seems impossible. Seems well, there's no way that this can happen. You call me out, I trust you to do what you need to do. I've always envisioned this, I mean, a number of times. I can't tell you how many times I've wondered to myself, was there a gap between the water and Jesus's and Peter's feet? What Was it a little splashing happening under their feet? Well, I, I have no idea, and conjecture and speculation is kind of foolish in that regard, but uh, I'm not above being foolish from time to time. But we know what happened after he started walking out there that, well, indeed, his feet did go into the water. When he saw that the wind was boisterous, it says in verse 30, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And so the metaphor continues, right? As he's walking out there, and, and he sees the wind, and he sees the waves, and he's captivated here in fear by what's going on underneath him, what's going on around him, his eyes were taken apart. Again, a familiar Familiar metaphor, right? A familiar picture for us. It's just, it's, it's a perfect laid out demonstration of what we do. Sometimes it's out of fear. Man, this is, I don't know what to do in this situation. Everything's coming on me and we're looking so horizontally and not looking vertically at where the Lord is at. He was looking in this situation, looking down it seems. And looking around and not looking out where the Lord was at. We can identify, we can understand this. And so... He was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, as he was, had the potential at least of being choked out here. Uh, he said, Lord, save me. That's what he did when he was distracted by things. Now listen, first off, what did Jesus do? He saved him. He, he, well, he assumed that second posture, let me say it that way. What happened there in verse 31? Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now look, it doesn't say that Jesus stooped down here. Peter wasn't down here below him. He didn't have to reach down into the water where he was down in the silt and in the sand and sunk all the way down. He started to sink down and Peter did what Peter should have done. Jesus, help me. Okay, understand. He calls out in fear. He understood it. I, help me, Lord. And so the Lord reached out, you know, and grabbed him, right? Reached out. This was his posture. Bang. Strong hands, strong arms. I love that picture. I love that, that well, that the Lord didn't have to dig out. He just digged down. He just reached out and he seized Paul. That's what that word means. When it says that he reached out and caught him, it wasn't like, you know, this sort of thing. He caught him and he held him. And he, well, the word is used as seized elsewhere in Scripture. He didn't have to wash Peter off. He didn't have to shake out the mire. and He didn't have to do any of those sorts of things. He reached out and he just seized him and let him go nowhere else. Peter was safe. He just didn't realize it. 
He wasn't going back into the sludge. The Lord wasn't going to let him suffer the ultimate punishment of sin, which is well, eternal, eternal separation from him. He was past that. He was beyond that. He was in the presence of Jesus as, as Jesus' family, man. I mean, he's family, right? Jesus was right there with him. Now, we can go back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, that man who was down in that miry pit and that miry clay, he was a picture of this as well. And this is one of those verses that Scott read this morning. He wasn't lost in the pit of mire, naturally speaking. He was pulled up and out, right? Pulled up and out. He, he wasn't left there. Uh, but we see him writing, I believe, from his experience there when he says, I called on your name, O Lord, in Lamentations 3.55, from the lowest pit. Naturally speaking, it doesn't get much lower than sinking down into the mire. I don't care what your relative elevation is. If you're down in, in the sinking mire, that is the deepest pit that you can be in. You've heard my voice, he goes on to say. Do not hide your ear from my sighing, from my cry for help. And the Lord didn't. The Lord pulled him up and out, naturally speaking. The Lord pulled Peter up and out, naturally speaking. The Lord pulls us up and out when we are afraid. When we say, Lord, here I am and, I, and I'm, I'm wrecked here. I, I feel like I'm choking. He grabs us and he'll prop us up and he'll sustain us. We understand this. He'll encourage us. He'll stop us from choking. Saints, if you're choking spiritually, you need to realize it. You can't seek for help if you're not going to recognize you need help. If you're choking spiritually, cry out to the Lord and tell Him. Save me, Lord. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm a wreck right now. Jonah did it. Jonah did it. Now, I knew that Scott was going to be speaking from Jonah this morning, but I went there anyway. I'm giving it away now. But I think Joel already did it a couple of weeks ago, so the spoiler is taken care of. If we're choking spiritually, we need to understand it. And Jonah's a testimony of that. Jonah 2 and verse 5. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul, he says. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. I love that poetry, but there's a reality to that. He's talking about, I, I went as deep down as it can be, spiritually certainly, but naturally to a, to a, a real sense. He was under the water, man. He was in the depths. He was where Peter didn't want to go. Jonah was inside of this fish and taken down low where, well, where he kind of desired to be if you get right down to it. Again, I don't want to preach Jonah. Uh, we're hearing it on su at Sunday school, but looking at the metaphor again, he's going down, down when Jesus is standing up there on the water. Jonah's going down and down. Peter didn't want to go there. And Jonah recognized, I don't want to be here. Man, I took effort and made steps to go this direction. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Saints, when this is the case for us, when we're choking on things of the world and it's displacing the word for us, displacing our peace with fear perhaps, or displacing our joy in the Lord with the simple temporal satisfaction, and you know the world will do that for us very readily, we'll choose it. Back in the old days, we used to do carbon monoxide checks all the time because we have carbon monoxide in the house. Carbon monoxide will take your hemoglobin in your blood, that little cell that holds oxygen, and 600 times more readily than oxygen, it will attach to that hemoglobin. That's how it works. It displaces that, bumps the oxygen out of the way, and it can be an oxygen-rich atmosphere after you've been exposed, and the oxygen won't attach to your blood because the carbon monoxide is there. 
man, the things of the world will, will allow it to bump off our attraction to the things of God. It will allow it to bump off, and it will readily stick there. It will choke out. It's not what we want to do. We need to recognize it. We need to recognize, man, I'm having some symptoms right now. Yeah. Headache, cherry red skin, all of the things that they taught us in paramedic school. Ah, there's some carbon monoxide going on here. I'm being poisoned by the things of the world. It's displacing the things of God. I need to do a check on myself. Whew. Man, uh, I'm not in a good place. How did I get? You know what? It doesn't matter right now. Lord, help me. Save me, Lord. And what does he do? He takes that posture. Bang. Reaches out and holds us, certainly. Will he chastise you for being weak in the faith? Maybe. <laughs> Most certainly. He did Peter, right? How did you doubt? He said. Will we have earned that chastisement? Oh, yes, we sure will. But can we learn from it? Absolutely we can, if we trust him for it. That learning leads us to that third posture that the Lord will take us. And that is that posture that we take when we're walking in faith with him. Walking by faith with him. Walking with maturity with him. Thus far, as children of God, we've been reached down to into the mire. Pulled up out of the pit, right? Not lost any longer. Thus far, oftentimes, perhaps very often, we've been reached out to by God when we ask Him to help us. We've been reached out to and encouraged to continue on. What's left? You might say reaching up. That's not where I'm going. Uh, I didn't used to watch Who Wants to Be a Millionaire very often, but I was familiar with the concept. You, got, you see this fly that's been dive bombing me up here? It smells all this mire that I've been talking about. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was an old TV show. I think it might have been, I don't know, rebooted a number of times, but Regis Philbin, you know, he'd sit there and he'd have a guy on there, you young people who aren't familiar with it. Essentially a game show. Have a person on there and they would ask step by step these questions that increased in value. They'd answer the question uh, and then they would build up until they had a million dollar, literally a million dollar question, where if they answered all of these questions correctly, they'd get a million dollars at the end. And they had three what? Lifelines, right? Do you remember that? Anyone watch that? It was back in 1999, the episode that I'm considering. So it's been years ago. I was dumbfounded it was that long. 1999. The guy makes it all the way to the end. Hasn't used a single lifeline where you can, I don't know, it's just little helps that they give you in, uh, along your way. He hadn't used a single one and they ask him the million dollar question. And what does he say? I want to use a lifeline. Right? And so he, one of them was phone a friend. And so... They said, well, who do you want to call? He goes, I want to call my dad. So he says, okay, here we go. Regis says, Beep. you know, the phone rings. It's a, yeah, ring, ring. Hello. He goes, hey, dad. And he goes, hey, hey, bub. You know, <laughs> what's going on? He's like, I'm on the million dollar question. I just want to let you know, I don't need your help. I'm going to win the million dollars. And he's like, okay. <laughs> Click. And he goes, the answer is Richard Nixon. You win the million dollars. And that was that. It was, uh, it was a, what a flex, man. It was super cool, that guy saying, I don't need you, Dad. I, I'm going to win the million dollars here. Saints, there are no times that we don't need our lifeline. You understand this. There are no times that we don't need Jesus. But man, what a blessing it is when we get to the point where we're standing by him. Not needing. Let me pick you up again. Oh, I got you. Let me hold you again. Help me, help me. Do you see what's going on? I, 
I'm not trying to mock or belittle. I sang the song this morning. There are times. There are times when you feel washed over. There are times when you feel like you're choking. But what a blessing. You know, it doesn't sound very cool, perhaps, but if you think about it, you know, Jesus reaching down, grabbing a hand and pulling someone up. Help me, Lord, reaching out and doing this. What a blessing it is when it's our hand literally almost shaking his hand. Does that make sense? In fellowship. My good brothers come in every morning, come in, leave on Wednesdays. They shake my hand. It's a joint fellowship, right? If you want to be more tender than that, which I embrace such things, it's holding his hand. How much more a blessing is it to be standing side by side? Yeah, be all masculine if you want to. I don't mind. <laughs> holding his hand. Uh, dealing with things. And that's why I chose that opening text this morning. Back in Acts chapter 26. Our brother Paul here is standing... You understand this is near, well, approaching the end of his life. He's on the far end of his life rather than the early time. His ministry, well, his ministry of walking about, it's at a close just about. He's in natural peril, accused by murderous Jews unjustly. He's in the custody of Rome, which was, as you know, a, well, a power-mad empire that didn't have any affection for human life and that sort of thing, if it opposed the empire. Soon he was going to be en route to the emperor as he'd appealed to Caesar. And here he's standing before, well, I always tend to call these Herod's paper kings because they were under the thumbs of the empire. And they held kind of a token position as being governors of sorts over, over the Jews. But here he is in this natural peril, Paul is. Ha- having experienced a number of things in life, having been, as we well know, beaten and stoned and all of these things. And yet here he is standing here again in real natural threat. And there's no sign of choking on his part. No sign of his sinking whatsoever. And so I, I liked this example because he does... Exactly what we're supposed to do, even figuratively. Literally, he does this. He says, then Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. And so Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. Now, what does this mean? Well, maybe it means that he's like Brother Greg and he gets up here and I do this kind of stuff and I make dumb sound effects and I'm real emotive with my hands and I point and I punch and I do all of these different things. Or maybe he just said, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. Because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. He rejoiced in this opportunity. You know what he did after this? He preached, right? He gave his testimony. Do you know who I was? Sure you know who I was, Agrippa. You know the things of, 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 of the Jews and the goings on and the history and all these things. You know who I was. And Jesus found me, pulled me up out of the miry clay, reached out and steadied me when I needed it. And now, I am even now extending my hand and I'm holding my hand on Him. He is here with me. And let me tell you about Jesus. That's where Paul was in that day. That's the posture that Jesus was taking. That's the posture I want Him to have in 99.9% of my life. It's standing beside me, behind me, whatever the case is, putting His hand on me, saying, that's the way, that's the way, and encouraging me. Me having my hand on Him, extending my hand, making sure that He's there, certainly, just Finding encouragement perhaps for the moment, but not choking. Not gasping for air because the things around me are 
causing me to forget the peace and the joy that I find in the Word and in His presence. His posture is standing upright with me. That's the third posture that He is as my lifeline. That lifeline, the rope pulling me here and there, slack in between us. You see what I'm saying? I want it slack. I don't want Him to have to work so hard for me. Now, don't mistake me for saying, we're going to do this all for ourselves. We're going, man, we got, we're going to take our, we're going to get out there and we're going to be, yeah, we're going to flex on people. I don't need you, Lord. I'm winning the million dollars. No, that's not it. It's recognizing all ways that he's right there. It's recognizing always we need his strength. And it's recognizing always that his strength is ever available to us. Always. And finding boldness and encouragement in that. That's what the posture of my lifeline, I want it to be that way 24-7. That was that assurance that Paul had here. He wasn't reaching down to stoop and pull Paul out of the mire. He wasn't reaching out to seize him from the depths and hole. No, I got you. You know, you're choking again. No, Paul wasn't choking at all. He was standing with his dear one there. And Paul laid hold of him. Man, that's a blessed place to be. And that's what we're called to be. And we'll close in 1 Timothy. Paul expressing this need and this desire. Well, to this young brother, younger brother anyway. 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, You, O man of God, and let me tell you, you men of God and you women of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Seize eternal life. The posture of Jesus, if you want to call it that, the ideal one is him being seized by us. Us laying hold for that which we have been laid hold of for, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Look down at verse 18. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold, catch, seize on eternal life. Not lay hold of, finally laying hold of salvation. No, it's laying hold of it for themselves and living that abundance of eternal life. That's where Paul was as he stood before Agrippa. Not choking, not wavering, not struggling. He was standing. I guess you could say he was standing on top of the waters with the Lord Jesus there. Standing on top. And Jesus was simply hand in hand with him as his lifeline. Saints, that's the posture I desire. Is that what you desire? I hope that it is. We have moments where we're choking. We have moments where we're sinking. It's going to happen. That song is... Well, it touches me in my heart because I've been those places and I have the potential of being in those places yet again. But I want those times to be few and fewer still as I walk with the Lord. May we be mature in faith, standing in fellowship and agreement with the Lord. He is our lifeline. But wait, may we seek to not have him be put to such work as that. Take your encouragement and your joy and your peace from the lifeline that is Jesus moment by moment. Let's bow our heads together and speak to him once again, shall we? Heavenly Father, what a joy it is, Lord, to recognize that not only are we your children in title, Father, not only are we children to you in word and in lineage, Lord, but you view us as your children. You love us as your children. We're your children in relationship, Father. You care for us. You desire good things for us. And 
Jesus is ever-present, Lord, always there with us to enable and strengthen. Save us certainly, Father, but help us always to seek, not just to do of ourselves or for ourselves, but, Father, to obey you, to hear your will, and to do it, Lord, without struggle, without distraction, Father, always taking peace in knowing that Jesus is there, enabling, strengthening us, empowering us. Help him to compel us, Father, our love for him. We give you the glory this morning. Bless these ones, Father, and help us each one to mature in faith, that we can be in unity with you always. We give you the glory. We thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.